passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. Well, good morning again. As I mentioned, uh, we are uh, just starting a new sermon series. We started this last week. Uh, it's on First Timothy, and we are we are looking at what it means for us to be a church. First Timothy is a book that relays out what is the purpose of the church, what is the mission of the church, why why has God given us the church, and what does it mean for us to be a healthy church. First Timothy is a letter written by Paul to his old protege, Timothy, who has just become a new pastor at a new church, Ephesus. And in this letter, he lays out all of these details. Specifically, and we looked at this last week, the heart of the letter is found in chapter 3, where he says that the church is a household of God, committed to the truth. He uses this imagery of a defensive outpost in a very difficult world and says that the church's mission is to hold on to that truth and to live together as a family. This morning we're continuing our way through this book and we're going to be in chapter one again of this book. Last week we we spent a significant amount of time just looking at why this book matters to us. Yes, we here at Crosswinds believe that every book of the Bible has much to teach us. We can learn a great deal from the Bible, but especially for us here in Spencer at Crosswinds, this book matters a great deal to us. For one thing, it is about church health, and as a young church, that is particularly important for us to hear, to take to heart, and to learn. We also saw that Timothy was a young pastor, and surprise, I am a young pastor as well. It comes with unique challenges for the church as the pastor is trying to figure out how to be a pastor. And so this book matters a great deal. So if you ever get frustrated with me, go ahead and just take some time and read First Timothy. It'll make you feel better, I promise. We also looked at, at Timothy's personality and we saw he's a very relatable person. He's not a larger-than-life figure, but he's someone who we can all relate to with his weaknesses and his struggles. And we're reminded as we look at Timothy that God can use ordinary people with their ordinary obedience to do extraordinary things for the kingdom of God. And last week, we also looked at the importance of this because of our context. As we, become, as we live in an increasingly globalistic, pluralistic world with its benefits and its drawbacks, we have to know what the truth is. And we have to cling to that truth. And First Timothy addresses that. Now, last week, we also looked at the core of a healthy church. And if we miss this, this identity, then we might as well pack up our bags and go home. Paul reminds Timothy at the beginning of his letter that the core identity of the church, of being a healthy church, is their shared identity, our shared identity in what Christ has done for us. That's something that's true of all of us who are are, are Christians and are a part of this church. We must remember our corporate identity as the children of God, as God's people, as we follow him. And this morning, we're going to continue looking at this book, and we're going to explore what does it mean for us to be a healthy church. We're going to be in verses 3 through 11 of First Timothy chapter 1. You see, the church in Ephesus, uh, it wasn't perfect. In fact, it was far from it. 
The last time that Paul saw the elders of the church in Ephesus is in Acts chapter 20. And as he's returning from, uh, from Europe to Jerusalem and he's about to be imprisoned, he, he meets with the church elders uh, of Ephesus and he gives them this warning in Acts chapter 20. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. We pick up in in 1 Timothy 5 or 6 years later, and this has come true. You see, not only does 1 Timothy tell us that, that false teaching is beginning to spread in the church of Ephesus, but it's actually starting with some of the elders, some of the the church leaders, some of the pastors of the church in Ephesus. And here is Timothy, a new pastor in a new church, trying to learn the ropes of this church. And now he has to deal with some of his co-teachers, his co-elders, going astray and leading other people astray. So Paul writes this letter to Timothy, exhorts him to address some of the issues that we see of this false teaching. He wants them to do so in a way that maintains the unity and the integrity of the church. And as we look at 1 Timothy 1, verses 3 through 11, that's exactly what Paul is addressing. He's framing out what it means to be a healthy church in the opposite by saying what you should not believe in or the dangers of false teaching. And so this morning, that's what we're going to look at. These verses, and and we're going to look at the Bible And how we should view the Bible in light of the dangers of this false teaching. Or five reasons why why we should avoid this false teaching. If you have a Bible, I invite you to follow along. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, we're going to start in verse 3. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. There's some false teaching going on in the church in Ephesus. And here's the interesting thing about this. At first glance, it doesn't look like this false teaching is destroying the church. At least from the outside. It's, It's more subtle than that. These leaders who are guilty of false teaching, they're actually trying to help people to know God more. That's an interesting thing about this this false teaching. They they want people to know God more. That's a noble goal. Honestly, that's, that's part of the job description of being an elder or being a pastor. But as we soon are going to see, this goal of helping people to know God more, it doesn't always lead to actually helping people know God more. Sometimes when we want people to to go deeper with God, we can actually leave them further away from God. And that's the the issue that Paul is addressing here. So what is going on in Ephesus? Well, apparently, 
These elders are, are trying to lead people closer to God, but in, in their zeal to lead people closer to God, they actually reach a, a relatively troubling uh, conclusion. They've concluded that the Bible itself is not sufficient for people to have a deep relationship with God. I don't know how they reach this conclusion, but that's the conclusion they reach. That the Bible is not sufficient for a deep relationship with God. And so they begin to teach that the Bible is just the beginning of a deep relationship with God. If you really want to know God, if you want to know more about God, if you want to go deeper, there's more out there. And then you look at passages of the Bible that that begin to kind of even hint at this. John chapter 21, the last verse of the gospel of John, John says this. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Was, uh, were any, every one of them to be written, I suppose the whole world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Paul, or excuse me, John himself says that we just have a, a faint glimpse of everything that Jesus did and everything that Jesus taught. I don't know about you, but when you're reading the Gospel of John and it ends on that note, have you ever wondered what else Jesus did? The other miracles that Jesus performed? The the specific teaching that he gave to his disciples that, that would align with what he says in Scripture, but also is not recorded? The last thing that John writes in the Gospels tells us that, that there is more that Jesus did, but it doesn't say that there is more for us to to read in order to fully understand who God is. See, that's the, that's the key difference that the church in Ephesus, especially these elders, miss out on. This is why there's such a big deal every single time. It seems like there's this new discovery of a document that claims to be about Jesus. I'm, I'm sure you've heard of some of them. The Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Mary, the, the Infancy Gospel of Thomas, hundreds of others of these documents that people will find as they're digging through caves or, or through libraries in the Middle East. And they'll find these, these documents and they'll say, this is about Jesus. It will tell us more about him. We can finally truly understand more about who God is. The only problem with that is that these documents are all known to be written hundreds of years after Jesus. They're all false. They're not written by the people who actually knew Jesus like what we have in the Bible. But this highlights a temptation of ours. We have a temptation today that we need something more than just the Bible. We need something more than the Bible to to get to know God truly and deeply. In fact, one theologian tells us that the greatest greatest issue, the greatest temptation facing the evangelical church today is not to deny the inerrancy or the authority of Scripture, but to deny the sufficiency of Scripture. To believe that the Bible is enough. In the first century, at the time that that the book of 1 Timothy was written, around 65 AD, there were two books that were extremely popular. They were making their their rounds through Jewish circles. One was called the Book of Jubilees, and the other was called the Biblical Antiquities. Now, Jubilees was written uh, about 150 BC, so about 200 years before, uh, before 1 Timothy was written. And in this book, the author attempts to flesh out the details of the Old Testament that the Old Testament is silent on. And so it starts with Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, and goes all the way through Moses on the mountain of Sinai in Exodus. And it fleshes out all of these specifics of of things that the Bible doesn't tell you. But this is what actually happened. 
The biblical antiquities as well does the exact same thing. It was written in the year 25 AD, and it tries to serve the same purpose of giving us more details of what the Bible leaves out. The specifics of what took place from Genesis chapter 1 all the way through King Saul. And the church in Ephesus was faced with the exact same lie that we are tempted with. To go deeper with God, we have to go somewhere other than the Bible. These books were meant for good Jews and then later for good Christians to share with them the rest of the story. Now this week, I I did some reading uh, from these books just to see what they were like. Now, some of the passages, or or sometimes the passages were were relatively harmless, although they were speculative, uh, kind of, you you just couldn't prove the the elaboration that was explained here. I have a couple excerpts to to share with you. The first one is from Jubilees uh, about Adam and Eve as they're leaving the garden. John, can we throw that up here? Uh, so this is, this is from Jubilee, so this is not scripture, but this is uh, the extra, the rest of the story, so to speak, according to this book of what has taken place when Adam and Eve leave the Garden of Eden. It says this, And on that day when Adam went out from the Garden of Eden, he offered a sweet-smelling sacrifice, frankincense, galbanum, stacti, and spices in the morning when the rising of the sun from the day he covered his shame. Now here it gets interesting. On that day, the mouths of all the beasts and cattle and birds and whatever walked or moved was stopped from speaking because all of them used to speak with one another, with one speech and with one language. So, relatively harmless. This doesn't change our theology all that much. It doesn't change our doctrine. It just fills in the blanks or claims to fill in the blanks here. It says that Adam, as he's leaving the Garden of Eden, he begins to offer these fragrant offerings to God. Is that possible? Of course it's possible. It could have very well happened. It fits into the idea of Adam being repentant of his sin. But ultimately, at the end of the day, we don't know. It is speculation. Remember, this book is written 1,300 years after the book of Genesis is written. And then you get to the next verse, and the next verse claims that all animals lost their ability to talk. Not only is this speculation, but it seems to be a little fanciful. Of course, if you've ever wanted to know what your dog was thinking, your cat was thinking, you can just blame Adam and Eve for that as well. Now, like me, you might think that that second passage or that second verse that we just showed there, uh, it's baloney, that Adam or that animals never were able to talk and speak with humans. This isn't Dr. Doolittle. Uh, I think that that might minimize this idea that the snake is Satan. But at the end of the day, it's just speculation and it doesn't change our theology too much. It's relatively harmless baloney if we're going to talk about it that way. But other passages found in these books were not just speculative. They actually contradicted the theology and the view of Scripture. This is from Biblical Antiquities. Uh, Actually, we're going to look at Genesis first. Uh, Biblical Antiquities explains uh, Genesis. And in Genesis chapter 4, they're they're talking about the invention of music. So let's throw up Genesis 4.21 about this man named Jubal. Jubal uh, is right here, and he is known as the uh, inventor of music. says this, his brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and the pipe. Okay, So music starts with this man. As we look at the context of Genesis 4, he comes from an evil family. Now, this is what biblical antiquities says about this man. In that time, when those inhabiting the earth began to do evil deeds, each one with his neighbor's wife, and they defiled them, God was angry. And he, being Jubal, began to play the lyre and the lute and every instrument of sweet song and to corrupt the earth. 
So sometimes these passages are just speculative, and sometimes they actually are dangerous because they contradict what the Bible says. Biblical antiquities begins to hint that music is evil, that it corrupts the earth. And this is why we spent so much time on this this morning, is because this is the false teaching of the church in Ephesus. This is what Timothy is facing, this speculation, these myths, these genealogies found in the book of Jubilees and the biblical antiquities. Apparently, the elders in Ephesus thought that the key to going deeper in their relationship with God was to go elsewhere from the Bible. They thought that their true relationship with God could be found in rejecting good gifts from God, such as music such as marriage and food. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, Paul gives us a little bit more insight into this false teaching. He says this, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons, through the insecurity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from food that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. These false teachers were not just speculating on their teaching, but they were also contradicting the Bible. They were teaching things that were dangerous to Scripture. They were claiming that the key to a good relationship with God is to reject good gifts such as food, such as music, such as marriage. And these false teachers quickly gained an audience in the church in Ephesus because they were so-called deeper than Timothy and his simple focus on the gospel. And over time, this fascination with the rest of the story shifted from speculation to an actual justification through works. If you were truly going to be reconciled to God, if you were going to be justified before God, you had to have this secret, deep knowledge. You had to reject food. You had to reject certain foods and marriage and music. They began to see themselves as morally superior because they had the right knowledge of how to get to God. And Paul writes to the church in Ephesus in order to nip this false teaching in the bud. Verses 3 through 7 give us the reasons why we should avoid false teaching. You might be saying, well, why on earth do I need reasons to avoid false teaching? It sounds pretty redundant. Paul lays out five purposes, five reasons why we should avoid false teaching. And we're going to look at each of those as well as some modern day parallels. And uh, I just want to be really, really sensitive to this. As we look at some of these modern day parallels, uh, I might mention things that you actually appreciate, that you have learned from, that you uh, have, you know, experienced God through. Uh, So don't take things the wrong way. Just pause and, and say, could this be true? I want to I be fully upfront that my interpretation of modern day parallels could be wrong, but I, but I think that it is right. So there's a, there's a chance that I'm going to say something that, that might, uh, might go against something you've enjoyed. Let's just stick together through the end of this and, and consider what I have to say uh, as we look at these uh, modern day parallels of false teaching. So the first thing, or the first reason Paul tells uh, Timothy to avoid false teaching is this. He says, false teaching distracts from the gospel. False teaching distracts from the gospel. Verse 3 says this, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that 
you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Paul's first charge to Timothy is to address those teaching different doctrine. Now, doctrine today can sometimes be a dirty word. We can look at doctrine as something that conjures up images of dead academia and not a vibrant faith. There's a movement today to get rid of doctrine because it only divides us. Ironically, that is a doctrinal statement. The statement to get rid of doctrine is actually a doctrinal statement because doctrine is just simply what we believe. It is inevitable. Every single one of us has our own doctrine of what we believe about God and the Bible. And so Paul tells Timothy to address those with a different doctrine because by its very nature, it is distracting others from the gospel, the true gospel. In the book of Galatians, Paul writes some very harsh words for those who believe a different doctrine, a different gospel. He says this, I am am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, Let him be accursed. Paul has very harsh words for the false teaching in the church in Galatia, as well as in the church in Ephesus. Paul takes it seriously because it distracts from the true gospel. He urges Timothy to take it seriously because it distracts from the true gospel. And he urges us to take it seriously because it distracts from the true gospel. In the book of Revelation, Jesus has extremely harsh words for the church in Thyatira because they tolerated false teaching. It is never acceptable to Jesus to allow false teaching in the church because it, by its very nature, will lead people away from him, even when they think that they are being brought closer. Now, I mentioned, we'll mention some modern-day parallels here. I want to be sensitive to this. I want to be considerate uh, of this. But, but one thing that comes to mind for me as I, I think of, of different doctrine is, is the book The Shack, if you've read that. came out about 10 years ago. There's a movie coming out later this year. It's a bestseller, uh, very well-known. It's about this man who is struggling with depression, essentially, after his daughter was murdered. And he goes off into a shack out in the wilderness, and he meets God. I have to be honest, the first time I read this book, I, I really enjoyed it. thought it was, it was a good book. It's, it's very well written. It's engaging. It's got a compelling story. I want to be sympathetic to the purpose of this book. The purpose of this book is to encourage people to believe in God and a God who cares for them in the middle of their suffering. A very noble goal. It doesn't claim to be a theological treatise. And yet at the same time, it makes theological statements. Throughout this book, the the God of this book rejects the idea of punishment for sin. Throughout this book, it states that Jesus is not the only way to God and actually hints toward universalism, the idea that everyone on the face of the planet will be saved one day. As a heretical view of the Trinity and especially of Jesus' deity, the fact that Jesus is God is, is found in this book. See, the problem isn't that it's fiction. The problem is that it points us away from the God of the Bible even as it tries to tell us that it's pointing us to the God of the Bible. It's fascinating. It's a good book, as I said, but it distracts us from the true gospel. It distracts us from the story of God and points us to a watered-down gospel. 
And even more dangerously, it does so in a subtle way that we may not recognize, even as I did the first time I read the book. False teaching distracts us from the gospel. Paul's second reason to avoid false teaching, or his second warning, is this. False teaching denies the sufficiency of the Bible. False teaching denies the sufficiency of the Bible. Verse 4, the first half of the verse. He charges people not to teach a different doctrine or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculation. One of the most important things for us to recognize as Christians is the sufficiency of the gospel, the sufficiency of the Bible. The issue in Ephesus centered around this problem. Is the Bible enough for us? Or do we have to go elsewhere for a deeper relationship with God? There's danger to this thinking. There's danger to what I'm actually saying as well. Now, we can, we can interpret what I'm saying as any time that we have been blessed by a sermon, any time we've been blessed by a book that's written by a pastor or another Christian, whether it is Henry Blackaby or uh, Francis Chan or John Piper, if we are blessed by those, then we are wrong because we're doubting the sufficiency of the Bible. That's not what I'm saying here. There are some books of the Bible that seem to deny the sufficiency of the Bible, either in the writing or the way that we receive them. First and foremost, I want to look at one that I think denies the sufficiency of the Bible in the way that it is written. It's a very popular devotional. It's called uh, Jesus Calling. It's a devotion, devotional written by Sarah Young, and she writes from the perspective of Jesus. Now, if this was just a rhetorical device, it'd be one thing. If she was just imaginatively saying, you know what, I'm going to write in a unique perspective from the perspective of Jesus, that'd be one thing. But it seems that, that Sarah Young, if you read her foreword of the book, her, her introduction to the book, she seems to hint that her words are actually authoritative. Her words are actually the words of Jesus. And then you look at the book, and you begin to read it, and she rarely speaks about the cross. It's a devotional. It goes through the entire year. You have to make it halfway through February before the cross is mentioned for the first time. Instead, the focus is on trusting me more, which is, which is great. Of course, we should trust God more, but it doesn't center on the gospel. Instead, it turns faith into a work at the same time that it is implicitly denying the sufficiency of Scripture because she is speaking for Jesus. So that's one book that can implicitly, in its writing, Reject the sufficiency of Scripture. Other books reject the sufficiency of Scripture the way we receive them. Uh, Another very popular book and movie out there, uh, Heaven is for Real. Many of us are familiar with this. A four-year-old boy claims to go to heaven and meets Jesus. Now, my my goal here, we're not going to touch whether he went or not. Paul says that he ascended into the third heaven and saw God. John has a vision of heaven. Isaiah appears before the throne room of God. For, For all I know, this little boy could have. That's not my issue with this book. What's concerning to me is the reception of this book in evangelical circles. Whether we recognize it or not, we have a tendency to have the same mindset as the Ephesian church here in 1 Timothy. We can have this mindset of saying, you know what? We know that heaven is real because this book tells us so. Not because the Bible tells us so. In other words, the Bible doesn't prove heaven is real. This book proves that heaven is real. This is a very, very 
clearly stated uh, whether they meant to or not in the movie version of this book. In, in one of the main scenes of, of the movie, the, uh, the dad is wrestling through, is heaven for real, and whether he should share this with his congregation. And he's a pastor, and he's standing before everyone in his church. And he has his Bible out, and the Bible's in right in front of him. And he just pauses as he looks at it. And then, it makes a very important statement without actually saying a single thing. You notice he walks away from the Bible. He doesn't mention the Bible once and begins to tell his son's experience. Again, I I don't know if his son went to heaven or saw heaven, had a vision. That doesn't matter to me. The statement that that movie is making, and even in a way that we receive that book, is that the Bible is not sufficient for us. We need more knowledge. We need to turn elsewhere for us to truly know God, to truly know what the Bible says about God is actually true. False teaching denies the sufficiency of the Bible. Denies that we can learn everything about God through the Bible. That we need to turn elsewhere to actually experience God, to truly know him, to know if he's actually real. Again, I'm not, I'm not saying that any time you listen to a sermon, hopefully you get something out of this sermon. You read a book, hopefully you get something out of those books. But we have to seriously wrestle, are these books, are these sermons denying the sufficiency of Scripture? Or clinging to the sufficiency of Scripture? Different doctrine, false teaching can slip even into our circles. It's not just an ancient problem. The third reason that Paul says to avoid false teaching is this. False teaching wastes time. False teaching wastes time. Take a look at the second half of verse 4. These things promote speculations rather than stewardship from God that is by faith. Paul lists a very practical reason for us to avoid false teaching. It just plain wastes our time. It wastes your time and it wastes everyone else's time. It is so easy for end times to discussions to end up here. So easy for them to end up here because they distract from the gospel and they can be pure speculation. Lining up current events with biblical prophecy, if not done in humility, can be complete, utter speculation. People have done it for ages where they have tried to line up the events of their day with the prophecies of the Bible that refer to the end times. I'm not saying that that we shouldn't focus on the end times. We must walk in balance. In fact, Jesus tells us that we must be watchful. We're actually supposed to look for the signs, that we are to be expectants, that Jesus is coming, and he is coming soon. At the same time, we must not be consumed with every single detail to the point where it distracts from the gospel. The Gospels tell us that we will not know the day and the hour, or the hour. Uh, A friend of mine had a a father who was very, very fascinated about the end times and uh, would try to figure out when Jesus was returning by by looking at the Bible and current events. He would read with the Bible and the newspaper side by side, trying to line these things up. And, And his son eventually said, hey, you know what? I don't know why you're trying to find out when Jesus is going to return because the Bible tells us we will not know the day or the hour. And his simple reply was, we might not know the day or the hour, but we can know the day or the month and the week. Something like that. That completely misses the point of what Jesus is saying, and it completely wastes our time. 
Paul calls us or tells us that we are to be concerned with a stewardship from God. Our true calling in this world is to be a light in the world, to share the gospel with those who are in need, to spread the kingdom of God, an all-consuming fascination with lining up current events, with the end times uh, and prophecies, are, is something that is not concerned with our actual calling. Be watchful, be expectant, to look for the signs, yes, but be focused on the gospel and the spread of the kingdom. False teaching wastes time. Next thing Paul mentions is that false teaching has moral implications. It has moral implications. Verse 5. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. The heart of Paul's discussion here on, uh, on false teaching is found in this verse. False teaching always has moral implications. It is remarkable how quickly false teaching leads to strife and feelings of superiority in the church. But it's more than just superiority. False teaching does not lead to love in its truest sense because it cannot. Paul tells us that love is the fruit of three things in this passage. First, it is the fruit of a pure heart before God. This is an Old Testament term that refers to our right relationship with God. If we are not right with God, then we cannot love God truly. And we cannot love God or love others the way God would have us do so. Love is also the fruit of a good conscience. Not only are we to have a right relationship with God, but we are to have a right moral status before God. If we are not living rightly, then we cannot truly love God or love others the way he would have us love them. And the third thing Paul mentions is a sincere faith. He's not saying that whether we really believe what we believe or not, but whether we have the right belief or not. Are we clinging to the true gospel? If not, then we can't truly love God or love others the way he would have us love them. Love for God, love for others is rooted in right doctrine. False teaching has moral implications. It distracts us from truly loving one another, but the opposite is true as well. Moral issues can lead to false teaching. Timothy Keller is a pastor in Manhattan, and he works primarily among uh, new Christians or uh, formerly unchurched Christians. And, and Timothy Keller tells the story of a man who had recently become a Christian, had grown quickly in their church for months. He, he had become a Christian and was, was one of their bright rising stars in their church. And then all of a sudden he started to drift. He started to not attend church regularly. He, he stopped attending the different meetings and, and small groups that he was a part of. And finally, he met with Mr. Keller. And he said, I don't think I believe in God anymore. First thing out of Timothy Keller's mouth was this. How long have you been sleeping with your girlfriend? The question nailed the issue on the head. When our practices don't line up with Scripture and we choose our practices over our belief, we will eventually get rid of our belief, sacrifice our belief, compromise our belief. There is a connection between right living and right belief. And there is a connection between right belief and right living. If we believe the right things, right practice is inevitable in one sense. And yet at the same time, if we don't live the way our doctrine says to live, we will eventually compromise our belief. 
Now, here's why this is so important. Spent so much time on this one. If we want to be a healthy church, we have to love God, and we have to love one another. We have to do so in a way that is more than just being friendly with one another, but we have to be willing to let others into our lives, and we have to be willing to get into the lives of others. The foundation to that is a right understanding of God and what he has done for us. See, there's a danger here. If we don't commit to love one another, we can be prone to stray. We can begin to think that it's not really our charge to love one another, that it doesn't really matter if we are connected to a church body, but we can just come on Sunday mornings and get our fix. Our beliefs are influenced and changed by our practice, by what is convenient. And so if we want to be a healthy church, which I think all of us would say, yes, we want to be a healthy church, we must recognize that our belief has moral implications. Next one, the final one is this. False teaching misuses the Bible. False teaching misuses the Bible. Verses 6 and 7. Certain persons by swerving from these have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Plain and simple, false teaching misuses the Bible. It may be genuine, it may be trying to help people, but Paul is not fooled. These people ultimately do not know what they're talking about, the sayings that they're making, the claims that they are making. False teaching misuses the Bible. This is a summary of everything that we've addressed so far. It distracts us from the gospel. It causes us to look elsewhere for sufficiency. It wastes our time rather than focusing us on the heart of the gospel. And it leads us astray morally. And so Paul charges the church in Ephesus to avoid false teaching and to look at the Bible correctly. And that's what these last few verses in our passage are about. Verses 8 through 11 say this. Now we know that the law is good. If one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God, with which I have been entrusted." Note here that Paul points to the sufficiency of the Bible. That the Bible is enough. After he's addressing the false teaching in Ephesus that denies that the Bible is enough. And he does so in two ways. First, he tells us that the Bible tells us the depths of human wickedness. The Bible tells us the depths of human wickedness. That's the right way to look at the Bible, to see it as a mirror. We see our own wickedness, our own guilt in the Bible. Paul's language is strangely appropriate for us at times. He refers to the lawless, the disobedient, the ungodly, the sinners, the unholy, the profane. And Paul gets into a list of specific ways that humanity has rebelled against God's plan. It is clear to Paul that the Bible is sufficient in pointing out our sins and our wickedness. But that's not all the Bible does. The Bible also tells us the depths of God's grace. The Bible also tells us the depths of God's grace. He does not close with the law, with judgment, but with the gospel. Paul clings to the gospel as the foundation for sound, healthy teaching and belief. 
He looks to the gospel as the foundation of the church. And he says, in the face of false teaching, health of a church, healthy doctrine, and healthy churches starts with the gospel. And so as we close this morning, just a a quick exhortation for us. If we truly want to be a healthy church, we must not take our eyes off of Jesus or the Bible. If we truly want to be a healthy church, we must not take our eyes off of Jesus or the Bible. We must not be distracted from Christ by other things. We must not run to other sources for deeper knowledge or for deeper teaching or for extra revelation. We must cling to Jesus and the Bible and ask ourselves truly, Is the Bible enough? Is the Bible enough? Or do you need more? We might all have questions that we wish the Bible addressed. Questions that the Bible doesn't answer that we wish it would answer. When we say the Bible is sufficient, we don't mean that it answers every question that we have. When we say that the Bible is sufficient, we we confess that it answers every problem that we have. And those answers are found in Jesus. Is the Bible enough for you? That doesn't mean you can't read devotionals or, or listen to sermons or Christian books. Is the Bible enough for you to tell you the story of God's salvation for humanity? At the same time as we ask that, also ask, does your doctrine lead to love? Here in just a few seconds, we're going to celebrate communion. When we celebrate communion, we celebrate the unbreakable commitment that we have from Christ, the unbreakable communion we have with Christ. We also celebrate the unbreakable communion that we have with one another. And so ask yourself, are you loving others sacrificially? Are you opening yourself up to them? First Timothy is clear. We cannot truly be a healthy church unless we seek to love each other sacrificially. And so ask yourself this morning. Take time after the service to to stick around and talk rather than just heading for the exit. Take time to get to know someone that you don't know well. See how you can be praying for them. Come to the potluck if you don't have plans. Perhaps take time this week to have lunch or breakfast or coffee with someone. Are you willing to fulfill your charge our charge to love one another? Are we willing to be a church that strives to honor Christ with our belief? And are we willing to be a church that strives to honor Christ with our love? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the words of First Timothy. The charge that you have given us, your church, Help us to honor you in the ways that we live. Help us to honor you in the things that we believe. And help us to look to you and your gospel found in the Bible as what is enough for us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.